Hello and welcome to another episode of Macabre Mortals. This week I will be covering the slightly lighter topic of fairies, going to the myths and legends of them and also covering a few cases where fairies have been blamed. I just want to apologise that this episode is a little late. Here in Brisbane we went into a snap three-day lockdown and the last week of school for my son got cut short. And having him and a week earlier than expected and also having to study took all up all my time. I know this has been a reality for a lot of people and I'm certainly lucky that it was only three days, but it really puts in perspective, I think, what other people have been going through and how lucky we actually are here in Australia. I do still believe that it is out there as these two clusters seem to have miraculously sprung up from one other. And this one has come very close to home for me because some of the positive cases were actually somewhere where I regularly grocery shop and I'd actually been in this shop about an hour earlier than the person had been. It was quite confronting and it really puts into perspective how valuable your life is and really how we do still need to keep safe. Like one of the people who had actually spread it had actually had one vaccine. She hadn't had her second one yet, but the majority of the population here in Australia haven't had them. Do you believe in fairies? As a child, my parents told me that when my tooth fell out, I should place it under my pillow and the tooth fairy would come and take it away. Not only that, the fairy would leave me a shiny 50 pence piece in exchange. How exciting. That night, I dreamt of all the little people with wings scampering about, annoying my cat and dogs. And lo and behold, the next morning, the tooth had gone and there was a shiny 50 pence coin in its place. I actually still do this with my son. He has a tooth pillow. He's lost two teeth and he puts them under. And though it's a little bit more than a 50 pence piece now for what the tooth fairy pays for a tooth, the mystery still is there for him. I felt like Peter Pan, and I certainly think my son did, when he says, I do believe in fairies. I do, I do. The word fairy derives from the Latin fata, meaning fate. In all French, fairy, so F-A-E-R-I-E, meaning enchantment. No wonder Cinderella is such an enduring and popular story. With a magic spell, her fairy godmother transforms Cinderella's fate from one of drudgery to one of enchantment. Originating in English folklore, the earliest mentions of fairies are in the writings of Gervais of Tidbury, in 12th century English scholar and canon lawyer. During his many travels to different kingdoms and provinces, Gervais compiled a compendium of hundreds of stories about the unexplained marvels of the natural world. Called Recreation for an Emperor, Otia Imperala, Many of the stories had moral lessons about being a good Christian and a good king. 
He wrote about enchanted places with animals that had human characteristics and spirits that were both good and evil, like fairies. When most of us think of fairies, most of us probably think of the good fairies, like those featured in Disney movies. But there were times when people genuinely feared fairies. And much of the folklore of fairies revolves around protection from their malice. Back in a time when the world was a much more mysterious place, people feared offending fairies who could cast evil spells or curses on a whim. In Ireland in particular, such was the fear of upsetting the fairies that instead of referring to them by their name, they were euphemistically called the little people, the gentry, or the neighbours. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, knew of a haunted cottage that was feared more for its reported fairies than its ghosts. Fairy paths were avoided and digging in fairy hills forbidden. Some homes even had corners removed for fear of blocking the fairy path. Cottages were sometimes built with the back door directly aligned with the front, both being left open at night wherever it was deemed necessary to let the fairies pass through. In the traditional stories and legends, fairies didn't have wings, and the flying varieties grew in much popularity much later. Pixies, elves, goblins, trolls, and leprechauns were the most common species of folklore, as most of us can't see fairies. They live in the parallel universe called the realm of the Fae. According to legend, fairies went into hiding to avoid us because, well, we invaded their land, so what else could they do? As we modernized the world with electricity, built roads and cities, cut down trees, the fairies were forced to go underground and hide in caves, burrows, underwater fortresses, and finally into the spirit world. Shakespeare knew all too well that the best time to see the fairies was on Midsummer's Eve. This is when the invisible veil that separates us from the fairies is thin enough to allow people to see them and interact with them. In 1917, Elsie Wright and Francis Griffith two young cousins from Cottingley in Wetshire, England, caught some fairies on camera. Literary giant Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, believed they were clear evidence of psychic phenomena, setting the public imagination alight. Here, at last, was clear evidence of the existence of fairies. However, some 63 years later, Elsie and Francis admitted to using cardboard cutouts copied from a popular children's book of the time. But there was still a twist to this tale. Altogether, they had taken five photographs, admitting the first four were fake, but insisting that the fifth was real. It was the Victorians and the Edwardians who made the present-day notion of flying fairies so popular. Scottish novelist James M. Barry, who was alive from 1860 to about 1937, lost an older brother, David, in an ice skating accident when he was just six years old. David was his mother's favourite, and James tried to comfort her by pretending to take his brother's place. The comfort it gave his mother inspired James to go on to write his most famous work about a free-spirited young boy who could fly, and lived on a mystical island called Neverland, and never had to grow up. 
Peter Pan has spawned blockbuster movies from Disney to Spielberg, and it's ever even been speculated that Barry's creation inspired J.R.R. Tolkien's Elves of Middle-earth. A considerable amount of lore about fairies revolves around changelings, fairies left in the place of stolen humans. In particular, folklore describes how to prevent the fairies from stealing babies and substituting changelings and abducting older people as well. The theme of of a swapped child is common in medieval literature and reflects concern over infants thought to be afflicted with unexplained diseases, disorders or developmental disabilities. In pre-industrial Europe, a peasant's family substance frequently depended upon the productive labour of each member. A person who was a permanent drain on the family's scarce resources could pose a threat to the survival of the entire family. In Ireland, looking at a baby with envy or overlooking the baby was dangerous as it endangered the baby who was then in the fairy's power. So too was the admiring or envying a woman or man. Unless the person adding a blessing, the able-bodied and beautiful were in particular danger. Women were especially in danger in liminal states being a new bride or a new mother. Putting a changeling in a fire would cause it to jump up the chimney and return to the human child. But at least one tale recounts a mother with a changeling finding that the fairy woman had came to her home with a human child, saying the other fairies had done the exchange and she wanted her own baby. The tale of surprising a changeling into speech by brewing eggshells is also told in Ireland as in Wales. Various legends describe other ways to foil a would-be fairy kidnapper. One was to shout, Garam Agos Chorus Come Thu, I bless you, or God bless you, which would cause the fairy to abandon the child it was trying to steal. Another possible tactic was to insert oneself into an argument over who would keep the child, shouting, give it to me, would trick the fairy into releasing the child back to the human. Changelings in some instances were regarded not as substituted fairy children, but instead old fairies brought to the human world to die. Irish legends regarding changelings typically follow the same formula. A tailor is the one who first notices a changeling. The inclusion of a fairy playing bagpipes or some other instrument and the kidnapping of a human child through a window. The modern Irish girl's name, Sufra, means an elvish or a changeling child. The Asi or Sibara, commonly anglized as Shriva, may be prone to evil and mischief, and I will be covering that a little bit later on. In the Anglo-Scottish border region, it was believed that elves or fairies lived in elf hills or fairy hills. Along with this belief in the supernatural beings was the view that they could spirit away children and even adults and take them back to their own world. Often it was thought a baby would be snatched and replaced with a simulation of the baby, usually a male adult elf, to be suckled by the mother. 
the real baby would be treated well by the elves and would grow up to be one of them, whereas the changeling baby would be discontented and wearisome. Many herbs, salves and seeds could be used for discovering the fairy folk and ward off their designs. It was also believed that in order to force a changeling to reveal itself, it must either be surprised into speech or made to laugh. In one tale, a mother suspected that her baby had been taken and replaced with a changeling. A view that was proven to be correct one day when a neighbour ran into the house shouting, Come here and you'll see a sight. Yonder the fairy hills allow. The fairy hill is on fire. To this, the elf got up saying, Where's me? What'll come of me wife and bairns? And made his way out of the chimney. At Byerholm, near Newcastledon in Littlesdale, sometime during the early 19th century, a dwarf called Robert Elliot was reputed to be a changeling. When taunted by the other boys, he would not hesitate to draw his gully, a large knife, and dispatch them. However, being that he was woefully short in the legs, they usually outran him and escaped. He was courageous, however, when he heard that his neighbour, the six foot three inch William Scott of Crindon, a sturdy and strong boarder, had slandered his name, he invited the man to his house, took him up the stairs and challenged him to a duel. Scott beat a hasty retreat. In Poland, the Manmuna is a salvic spirit that exchanges babies in the cradle. The changelings left by the Mamuna were said to have noticeably different appearances. An abnormally large abdomen, usually small or large head, a hump, thin arms and legs, a hairy body and long claws. Mamuna changelings would also get their first set of teeth prematurely compared to a human baby. In order to protect a child from being kidnapped by the Mamuna, the mother would tie a red ribbon around the baby's wrist put a red hat on its head, and keep it out of the moonlight. Other preventative methods include not washing diapers after sunset and never turning their head away from the baby as it slept. Still, even if a child was taken by the Mamuna, there was a way to force her to return it. The mother would take the changeling child to a midden, whip it with a birch stick and pour water from an eggshell over it while shouting, Take yours, give mine back. Typically, the Mamuna would feel sorry for its own child and would return the human baby back to its mother. In Nordic traditional belief, it was generally believed that it was trolls or beings from the subterranean realms that changed children. Since most of the supernatural beings of Scandinavian folklore are said to be afraid of iron, Scandinavian parents would often place an iron tool such as a pair of scissors or a knife on top of the cradle of an unbaptized infant to prevent it from being abducted by the trolls. It was believed that if a human child was still taken, in spite of such measures, the parents could force a return of the child by treating the changing cruelly, using methods such as whipping or even inserting it into a heated oven. In at least one case, a woman was taken to court for having killed her child in an oven. In Sweden, it is believed that a fire must be kept lit in the room housing a child before it's christened, and furthermore, that the water used to bathe the child should not be thrown out, 
since both of these precautions will prevent the child from being taken by the trolls. In one Swedish tale, the human mother is advised to brutalise the changeling so that the trolls will return her son, but she refuses, unable to mistreat an innocent child despite knowing its nature. When her husband demands she abandon the changeling, she refuses and he leaves her, whereupon he meets their son in the forest wandering free. The son explains that since his mother had never been cruel to the changeling, so the troll mother had never been cruel to him. And when she sacrificed what was dearest to her, her husband, they had realized they had no power over her and released him. The tale is notably retold by the Swedish children's story, author Helena Nabal. In the 1913 book, Bland Tomar och Troll, a princess is kidnapped by the trolls and replaced with their own offspring against the wishes of the troll mother. The changelings grow up with their new parents, but both find it hard to adapt. The human girl is disgusted by her future bridegroom, a troll prince, where the troll girl is bored by her life and by her dull human future groom. Upset with the conditions of their lives, they both go astray in the forest, passing each other without noticing. The princess comes to the castle whereupon the queen immediately recognises her, and the troll girl finds the troll woman who is cursing loudly as she works. The troll girl bursts out that the troll woman is much more fun than any other person she has ever seen, and her mother happily sees that her true daughter has returned. Both the human girl and the troll girl marry happily the very first day. In Wales, the changeling child, Plant Kale, initially resembles the human child for which it has been substituted, but gradually grows uglier in appearance and behaviour, ill-featured, malformed, ill-tempered, given to screaming and biting. It may be less than usual intelligence, but may be equally well be identifiable on account of its more than childlike wisdom and cunning. The common means employed to identify a changeling is to cook a family meal in an eggshell. The child will exclaim, I have seen the acorn before the oak, but I never saw the likes of this, and vanish, only to be replaced by the original human child. Alternatively, by following this identification, it's supposedly necessary to mistreat the child by placing it in a hot oven, by holding it in a shovel over a hot fire, or by bathing it in a solution of foxglove. Two 19th century cases reflect the belief in changelings. In 1826, Anne Roche bathed Michael Yee, a four-year-old boy unable to speak or stand, three times in the flesk. He drowned the third time. She swore that she was merely attempting to drive the fairy out of him, and the jury acquitted her of the murder. In 1895, Bridget Cleary was killed by several people, including her husband and cousins, after a short bout of illness, probably pneumonia. Local storyteller Jack Dunn accuses Bridget of being a fairy changeling. It is debatable whether her husband Michael actually believed her to be a fairy, 
Many believe that he concocted a fairy defence after murdering his wife in a fit of rage. The killers were convicted of manslaughter rather than murder, as even after death they claimed to be convinced that they killed the changeling, not Bridget Cleary herself. Many people believe that wearing the protective charms, like wearing clothing inside out, church bells, St. John's wort, and Falkleaf lovers, are regarded as effective against fairies. In Newfoundland folklore, the most popular type of fairy protection is bread, varying from stale bread to hard tack or a slice of fresh homemade bread. Bread is associated with the home and the hearth as well as with the industry and the taming of nature, as such seems to be disliked by some types of fairies. On the other hand, in much of the Celtic folklore, baked goods are a traditional offering to the folk, as are cream and butter. The prototype of food and therefore a symbol of life, bread was one of the most commonest protections against the fairies. Before going out into a fairy haunted place, it was customary to put a piece of dry bread in one's pocket. In country Wexford in Ireland in 1882, it was reported that if an infant is carried out after dark, a piece of bread is wrapped in its bib or dress, and this protects it from any witchcraft or evil. Bells also have an ambiguous role where they protect against fairies. The fairies riding on horseback, such as the fairy queen, often have bells on their harness. This may be a distinguishing trait between the seely court from the unseely court, such that fairy use them to protect themselves from more wicked members of their race. Another ambiguous piece of folklore revolves around the poultry. A cock's crow drove away fairies, but in other tales recount fairies keeping poultry. While many fairies will confuse travellers on the path the will of the wisp cannot be avoided by following it. Certain locations known to be the haunts of fairies are to be avoided. C.S. Lewis reported hearing of a cottage more feared for its reported of fairies than its reports of ghosts, as I said earlier. In particular, digging in the fairy hills was unwise, and paths that the fairy travel are also wise to avoid. Locations such as fairy forts were left undisturbed, and even cutting a bush on a fairy fort was reputable to be the death of those who had performed the act. Fairy trees such as thorn trees were dangerous to chop down. One such tree was left alone in Scotland, though it prevented a road from being widened for 70 years. Other actions were believed to offend fairies. Brownies were known to be driven off by given clothing, even though some of the folk tales recounted that they were offered by the offended by the inferior quality of the garments given, and others merely stated, some even recounting that the brownie was delighted with the gift and left with it. Other brownies or fairies left households or farms because they had a complaint or a compliment. People who saw fairies were not advised to look closely because they resented infringements on their privacy. The need not to offend them could lead to problems. One farmer found that fairies thresh, threshed his corn 
but the threshing continued after all his corn was gone. He concluded that they were stealing from his neighbours, leaving him the choice between offending them, dangerous in itself, and profiting by the theft. Millers were thought by Scots to be no canny, allowing their ability to control the forces of nature, such as fire in the kiln, water in the burn, and for be able to set machinery a whirring. Superstitious communities sometimes believed that the miller must be in league with the fairies. In Scotland, fairies were often mischievous and to be feared. No one dared set foot into the mill or kiln that night, as it was known that the fairies brought their corn to be milled after dark. So long as the locals believed this, the miller could sleep secure with the knowledge that his stores were not being robbed. John Fraser, the miller of Whitetail, claimed to have hidden and watched the fairies trying unsuccessfully to work the mill. He decided to come out of hiding and help them, upon which one of the fairy women gave him a gorpen, a double handful of meal, and told him to put this in his empty store, saying that the store would remain full for a long time, no matter how much he took out. It is also believed that to know the name of a particular fairy, a person could summon it and force it to do their bidding. Their name could be used as an insult towards the fairy in question, but it could also rather contradictorily be used to grant powers and gifts to the user. Before the advent of modern medicine, many physiological conditions were untreatable and children were born with abnormalities and it was really common to blame the fairies. Sometimes fairies were described as assuming the guise of an animal. In Scotland, it was particular, peculiar. It was peculiar to the fairy women to assume the shape of a deer. Gosh, pardon me, I can't read today. While witches became mice, hares, cats, gulls, or black sheep. In the legend of Noxhigawan, in order to frighten a farmer who had pastured his herd on a fairy ground, a fairy queen took on the appearance of a great horse, with the wings of an eagle, a tail like a dragon, hissing loud and spitting fire. Then she would change into a little man, lame of a leg, with a bull's head and a lambent flame playing around it. In the 19th century, Char Ballard, Lady Isabel and the Elf Knight. The Elf Knight is, blue, is a blue-beard figure, and Isabel must trick him and kill him to preserve her life. The child ballad, Tamlin, reveals that the title character, though living among the fairies and having fairy powers, was in fact an earthly knight. And though his life was present now, he feared that the fairies would pay him their tinned to hell. Sir Ofeo tells how Sir Ofeo's wife was kidnapped by the king of the fairy, and only by trickery and an excellent harping ability was he able to win her back. So Diagra narrates the tale of a woman overcome by her fairy lover, who in later versions of the story is unmasked as a mortal. Thomas the Rhymer shows Thomas escaping with less difficulty, but he spends seven years in Elfland. Osen is not harmed by his stay in the fairy, but by his return when he dismounts, the three centuries have passed and catch up with him, reducing him to an aged man. 
A common feature of the fairies is the use of magic to disguise their appearance. Fairy gold is notoriously unreliable, appearing as gold when paid, but soon after revealing itself to be leaves, gorse blossoms, gingerbread cakes, or a variety of other comparatively worthless things. These illusions are also implicit in the tales of fairy ointment. Many tales from the Northern Europe tell of a mortal woman summoned to attend a fairy birth, sometimes attending a mortal kidnapped woman's childbed. Invariably, the woman is given something for the child's eyes, usually an ointment. Through mischance or sometimes curiosity, she uses it on one or both of her own eyes. At that point, she sees where she is. One midwife realises that she was not attending a great lady in a fine house, but her own runaway maidservant in a wretched cave. She escapes without making her ability known, but sooner or later portrays that she can see the fairies. She is invariably blinded in the eye or in both if she used the ointment on both. There have been claims in the past by people like William Blake, who have seen fairies at funerals. Alan Cunningham and his Lives of the Imminent British Painters records that William Blake claimed to have seen a fairy funeral. Did you ever see a fairy's funeral, madame? said Blake to a lady who happened to sit next to him. Never, sir. I have, said Blake, but not before last night and went on to tell how in his garden he had seen a procession of creatures of the size and colour of green and grey grasshoppers, bearing a body laid out on a rose leaf, which they buried with songs and then disappeared. This type is believed to be an omen of death. Tuthan Diran The Tuthan Diran are a race of supernaturally gifted people in Irish mythology. They are thought to represent the main deities of a pre-Christian island. Many of the Irish modern tales of the Turithadan refer to these as being fairies. Though in more ancient times they were regarded as goddesses and gods. The Turithadan were spoken of having as come from the islands in the north of the world or in other sources from the sky. After being defeated in a series of battles with other worldly beings, and then by the ancestors of the current Irish people, they were said to have withdrawn to the side, fairy mounds, where they lived in popular imagination as fairies. Asosai. The Asosai is the Irish term for a supernatural race in Ireland comparable to the fairies or elves. They are variously said to be ancestors, the spirits of nature, or the goddesses or gods. A common theme found among the Celtic nations describes a race of people who had been driven out by invading humans. In all Celtic fairy lore, the Asosai, people of the fairy mounds, are immortals living in the ancient barrows and cairns. The Irish Banshee, the woman of the fairy mound, is sometimes described as a ghost, but could actually mean that she is one of the, these immortal goddess fairies. So, 
Why are we still fascinated with fairies in our modern age? Could it actually be that fairies are real and they steal away our imaginations to a magical place? One that we rather enjoy. A land of adventure, of mystique, of enchantment. A land where we struggle to overcome evil, yet we always prevail. And that could be the fairies' greatest appeal. Because fairy stories usually have a happy ending. My sources this week were Five Minute History, uh, Wikipedia, also a book by Laura Creedy, A Study of Fairy Tales, and also another book called Fabulous Creatures, Mythical Monsters and Animal Power Symbols by Cassandra Eason. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. As I mentioned last week and at the head of this episode, I will be doing a series of Narcissistic Personality Disorder for the next few weeks, and I will be looking into doing a deep dive on this subject. If you have any questions or any feedback, then please give me an email at macabreformortals at gmail.com or give the Instagram page a follow and give me a DM on there. If you do have any time, I know this gets a little bit exhausting if you do listen to other podcasts, but if you could give me a a rate, review, and a subscribe on whatever app that you're listening to this podcast to, it's been really encouraging, actually, to see my numbers have really increased, um, as I said, since the parole series and the last series, especially with the dissociative identity disorder, my numbers really doubled, so it's really positive for me, and it It makes me feel like I'm actually doing a good job. As always, please try and keep safe in these ever-changing times and have a great week. Bye.